So the first one is just a little thing. Second one and third one are connected, and we're just going to fold them all together. So the first one, it's interesting. It's Memorial Weekend. Um, and um, yesterday, I, I hung out with a friend yesterday morning who was a Marine for, I think, like 16 years. And then he uh, left the Marines and joined the Air National Guard Reserves. I think that's a real deal, right? Okay. Um, if I got it right. And um, all, all, all day Saturday, whenever I saw him, I saw him, I was at a half marathon yesterday, and um, I saw him beforehand and after, afterward, and the whole time as a guy who was in the military, and is in the military pretty much all his adult life, um, the whole Memorial Day weekend is a big thing for him. And he kept saying to me, uh, and to everybody else that he could, he kept saying, uh, tomorrow's Memorial Day, make sure you remember those who died to give us our freedom. And all I could think of was, what? Christ, right? So as much as I am, I am glad that I'm born in America and I have my freedom, how much more is our freedom in Christ? How much more is the freedom that Christ has brought? So this, this Memorial Weekend, will I take time to remember and be grateful for those who died to provide the freedom I have? Absolutely. But this weekend, or this tomorrow especially, I'm going to really focus on Christ and remember the real freedom I have. Because ultimately, who cares if I have freedom in America if I don't have freedom from hell and sin and death, right? That's our real freedom. Uh, there is no freedom outside of that freedom. Everything else is a facade. The only thing that brings value and meaning and purpose and anything to the freedom we have as Americans is because I have freedom in Christ. Otherwise, who cares? Because whether I have freedom in America, but not freedom because of Christ, I'm still enslaved, aren't I? I'm still in slavery. And there's nothing that anybody who dies in a war could ever do to change that, except for Christ when he went to war for me, and ultimately for his glory, right? So... Just some, that's my first brief little message. We are in between studies, and so we're just having a, having a big time working through some passages I find or studies that I find very interesting. And that just really was poignant for me tomorrow, yesterday, and so I just want to share that with you. Uh, our study this morning is going to be twofold. Uh, what I mean by that is we're first going to do a study briefly on something that's not inspired. And uh, one of the... I do this once in a while. It's a song. I'm going to talk about a song that we sang. I'm going to tie that into the real study that we're going to have this morning uh, because it's a song that Andrew introduced to us. About how long ago did you introduce this to us, Andrew? This song? Is it two years ago? He introduced us to it about two years ago, and I remember the first time we sang it, it just triggered questions in my mind, and my mind just started racing uh, with regard to what God says in the Scriptures. But the song is, we haven't sung it in... What, about three weeks maybe? Two, three? Has it been two months since we sang it? Okay, so maybe two months. When you get old, everything starts running together, doesn't it, Jim? I just want to get a testimony over here. <laughs> I like picking on Jim because now I'm 60 and so I'm, I'm kind of moving into that old guy category. So it's okay. Right, Jim? No, <laughs> that's not a good thing anymore, Jim. <laughs> Plus, I lost my baby tooth 
two and a half weeks ago, so now I, you know, I can't claim that I'm young anymore, you know? What's that? Yeah. <laughs> In any case, the song is Boldly I Approach. If you remember the song, again, Andrew says we haven't sung in about three week, three months. So I'm going to to read the words to you, and we're going to talk about it a little bit before we jump into the text. We're going to bounce around in the scriptures this morning. The song says this, By grace alone somehow I stand, where even angels fear to tread. Invited by redeeming love before the throne of God above. He pulls me close with nail-scarred hands into His everlasting arms. When condemnation grips my heart and Satan tempts me to despair, I hear the voice that scatters fear. The great I am, the Lord is near. Oh, praise the One who fights for me and shields my soul eternally. Boldly I approach Your throne. Blameless now, I'm running home. By Your blood I come, welcomed as Your own into the arms of majesty. Behold the bright and risen sun, more beauty than this world has ever or, I'm sorry, more, more beauty than this world has known. I'm face to face with love himself, his perfect spotless righteousness. A thousand years, a thousand tongues are not enough to sing your praise, his praise. This is the art of celebration, knowing we're free from condemnation. Oh, praise the One, praise the One who made an end to all my sin. Interesting song. Obviously not an inspired text. Um, but I'd like to comment on a few things on the, on the song and then fold it into our message this morning. I used to, First of all, let me jump to the end of the song. I used to originally be troubled uh, by the conclusion of the song, the last lines of the song uh, that start out with, this is the art of celebration. That, that phrase always kind of frustrated me. Because I misunderstood what he was trying to say, what the song, what the group uh, was trying to say. Because in my thinking, it was this is the art of celebration, what we're doing right here. If you wonder what celebration looks like, this is what we're doing right here. But that's not what he's saying. When he says this is the art of celebration, what he's saying, explaining the art of celebration is it's flowing out of knowing we're free from condemnation. And then he goes on, oh, praise the one, praise the one who made an end to all my sin. What he did is the art of celebration. Recognizing it and responding to it is the art of celebration. But jumping to the beginning, the first, the first um, verse, that's where I want to temporarily focus this morning. By grace, somehow, by grace alone, somehow I stand where even angels fear to tread. Invited by redeeming love, before the throne of God above, He pulls me close with nail-scarred hands into His everlasting arms. Um, the first time we sang that verse, it just really tweaked my brain, my thinking. I just started, my mind just started racing and racing and racing over the ramifications of that verse that we sang. And I, as I began to think about it, it just started raising all sorts of questions in my mind. The first line, I get it. By grace alone, somehow I stand. I get that, right? I don't stand because of my merit, correct? I don't stand because I brought anything to the table. I don't, I don't, I don't stand because of somehow that I lived. By grace alone, somehow I stand. I, I get that. That's all Him, not me. 
The next line, where even angels feared to tread, is the, is the line, the primary line that tweaked my brain. Because it made me wonder what was the songwriter meaning when he said, when, when they wrote, where even angels fear to tread. He goes on and says, invited by, and I already read, but I'll read it again. Invited by redeeming love before the throne of God above, he pulls me close with nail-scarred hands into his everlasting arms. Um, and I started thinking about the verse, and I, although I certainly can't speak authoritatively about what all that they were intending by the verse, but it seems like when he says, where even angels fear to tread, it's this place that I stand, right? But it didn't answer my questions. Invited by redeeming love starts to answer it because the angels aren't redeemed, right? Redeemed means you've been bought back from someplace, right? From some condition. So they're not, they're not, um, they're not redeemed. Before the, grace, before the throne of God above. Now we know the angels are before the throne, right? They're all around the throne. We, we know that according to the Scriptures, so that can't be it. Uh, he pulls me close with nail-scarred hands into his everlasting arms. This is where it all started to race in my thinking. Because unlike the angels, we find ourselves, what does it say? He pulls me close with nail-scarred hands. The angels don't experience that. There's nothing in the Scriptures that talks about that. Anywhere. On either side. On either point that he made in that line. Pulls close, nail-scarred hands. The nail-scarred hands are not for the angels. Correct? Nail-scarred hands are for you and me. Pulls us close. There's no evidence in the Scripture that he pulls the angels close. In fact, we're going to see in the Scriptures that there's an interesting difference between the angels and us in this category. But the Scriptures are very clear that the relationship between His redeemed people and Him is one of incredible intimacy. And it's exclusive to His redeemed people. If I may just throw a verse out briefly that's not part of the message, but just to maybe prime the pump a little bit. Um, boy, just like that, I'm getting young again. Just like that, the verse just went... Jim and I were in our own little in our own little party here, uh, <laughs> but the, the scriptures talk repeatedly. So the verse is gone, so we're going to skip that. But the scriptures talk repeatedly about the intimacy and the closeness that you and I have that they do not. With that in mind, if you take your scriptures and turn to Isaiah chapter six. There's many directions we could go on this discussion. What I'm going to do this morning as you're turning there, we're going to talk about the relational difference between God and us versus God and angels. We're going to move off of angels really quickly because I want to talk about God and us. But the song just, this is, this is flowed out of the, the song that Andrew introduced us to a couple years ago that we just read. A couple interesting things out of Isaiah 6, that, or actually one really important thing that we can get out of Isaiah chapter 6 that we don't usually look at when we look at Isaiah chapter 6. When we think about Isaiah chapter 6, verses uh, 1 through 8, what are some of the things we typically think about? What are some of the things that come to mind typically 
when we when we consider Isaiah six one through eight. Okay, we get a glimpse of it, but that's not typically what we look at. What heaven looks like. That's typically not what we what we think about when we think about Isaiah six, right? Okay, the amazing majesty of God, and what else? The the what? The not just insignificance, the what of man? The sinfulness, the absolute sinfulness of man, right? Those are the two things, aren't they, that typically come to come to bear? The majesty of God and the sinfulness of man. And that's the main points of the text. Although typically, the one thing you didn't mention that oftentimes people look at with Isaiah chapter 6 is they use it as a, what, what, what kind of passage usually? It's almost always preached for what purpose? Go, becoming a missionary, right? Becoming a missionary and go and speak and trying to, trying to get people to be missionaries. And uh, then when you read the rest of the text, you realize that this is a horrible thing, to, humanly speaking, that God is calling Isaiah to. Um, if you read 9 and following. In any case, let's read through the text. Then we're going to just look at one thing that wasn't mentioned yet. But starting in chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train and the train of his robe filled, his, filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man with unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go. Say this to the people. And then, obviously, the horrors of, of Isaiah's ministry is very quickly unfolded before, the, before Isaiah, before he goes. And actually follows what God says. I want to focus not on God in this text primarily, although we're going to talk about him. I'm not going to focus on man primarily, although he's there, and we're going to talk about him a bit. But I want to primarily focus on the seraphim. And we're not even going to spend a whole lot of time on the seraphim this morning. It's just a jumping off point. There's, there's something interesting that we learn here, and there's, a, there's something else that's alluded to in the text that's kind of intriguing as well. First, the thing that is clearly stated about the seraphim, it's a type of angel, is the seraphim has how many wings? Six wings. The scriptures record here in Isaiah chapter 6 that with the six wings, he spends two cover. I'm going to go backwards. Two covering, or two flying, right? With two he flew, two he covers his feet, and two he covers his, his face or his head, right? He's covering his face. I don't want to focus on the feet or the flying part. I want to cover. I just want to briefly look at two he covers his face. Why are the seraphim, plural, covering their faces? Why are they doing that? 
You know why? In this vision Isaiah is having, it's because there's someone else there. We know Isaiah is there, right? There's somebody else there too. Who else is there? Who? The Lord of hosts is there. And the seraphim are in the presence of the Lord of hosts. God. And the seraphim, in humility, are doing what? Covering their face, shielding their face from the, if I may put it this way, the majesty of the Lord of hosts. Because His majesty is just in the vision, is just blazing out through the temple. In the vision. And they're covering their, their faces from the majesty of the Lord of hosts. It's an interesting picture. Because you find that the, that the angels, in effect, it, the description seems to be that in humility, in the midst of the Lord of hosts and all of His glory, the smoke and the glory filling and his train filling the temple, they cannot do what? They cannot look upon the Lord of hosts, can they? That's the picture, isn't it? That's the picture. The other thing that's interesting about the uh, seraphim is an allusion, something that's alluded to in the text that we're going to briefly mention that we're going to see. If you look through the scriptures, it's intriguing. In fact, I was talking to Andrew and to Jim and Lois this morning to help me make sure I'm thinking correctly, and I think I am on this one. It is interesting that you find in Isaiah chapter 6, the angels, the seraphim, verse 3, are calling to one another, aren't they? That's what it says. They're calling to one another. And when they're calling to one another, they're calling to one another what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And three times is referring, three times is for absolute emphasis. Absolutely holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. That, state, that statement is, is stated again in Revelation, but not the, in the same way. But in Revelation chapter 5, they, they, talk, they, they sing holy, holy, holy again, don't they? And they also sing worthy is the Lamb who was slain, referring to Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. But here in chapter 6, verse 3, who are the seraphim talking to? To who? No. Who's the seraphim talking to? Each other. The seraphim are talking to each other, right? They're proclaiming to each other. As I've been thinking through the Scriptures, one of the things that's been intriguing to me is, at least for me, and I could be wrong, so Charles, if I'm wrong, you can correct me afterwards. But I couldn't find any place in the Scriptures where angels are recorded as speaking to God. I, I, I could find allusions to God speaking to angels or assumptions that God speaks to angels because they go out and do His commands. They fulfill His commands. Which implies that God spoke to them. Correct? There's implication, pretty obvious, God spoke to them. There is no implication in those, those statements, though, that the angels spoke back. They could have. They could have said, yes, Lord, and gone. They could have said that. But they, it wasn't necessary. We do have an angel that does speak to God one time. Job. It's a fallen angel. God initiates it, 
And that entire conversation is all antagonism, and it's all to set up Satan for absolute failure. To show he's absolutely a liar. Does that make sense so far? It's the only, it's a fallen angel, but as far as I can recall, it's the only communication that is an angel speaking to God. And again, God starts it out. He says what? Have you seen my servant Job? Have you considered my servant Job? Total setup. It sets up the whole book. And if you read the story carefully, Satan doesn't do whatever he wants to do to Job. He does what God told him he could do. So not only does, does God set up the conversations both times, but he also sets up the outplay, as it were, of those conversations. He sets them all up all the way through to the very end. That's an interesting perspective because when we think about angels, we think about angels being where? In heaven with God, and rightfully so. But it's interesting that we don't find, even if you are able, Charles, to find a conversation between God and angels, one of the things we can say about that, if you find it, it's incredibly rare. I just say that because I see him flipping verses right now. It's incredibly rare. If it did happen at all, I couldn't think of any. But it'd be incredibly rare. It's definitely the anomaly. But here's something that's really interesting. Even in Isaiah chapter 6, what do you find in Isaiah chapter 6? Verse 8. Well, first, you find him uh, in verse uh, 5. As he's going in this vision, he says, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and, and for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, you could argue he's speaking to God. I don't think so. I think he's speaking to himself there. In the, in the presence of God, he's speaking to himself in verse 5. But when you jump down to verse 8, everything changes. What changed between verse 5 and verse 8? Well, before, 8, is where he, 8 and 9 is where he answers the Lord, but what happens between 5 and 8? Sin is atoned for, right? His sin is atoned for between 5 and 8. The seraphim, who, who is covering his eyes, comes to, and, 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 and Isaiah's response initially is, I'm done, he's singing his funeral song, right? Then sin is atoned for, the coal is placed on his lips, and what, what happens next? God speaks. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send who will go for us? And Isaiah does what? He speaks to God. Doesn't he? He speaks to God. The seraphim are speaking to each other. Isaiah sings his own funeral song to himself. Sin is atoned for. God speaks. He speaks back. Here I am. Send me. And then what happens next? Verse 9. God then interacts back to Isaiah, does he not? All the way for the rest of the chapter. So you see this interaction takes place. Now it's just Isaiah chapter 6. You see this interaction between God and man. Now we know it takes place elsewhere too, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Who is the one, quiz time, who is the one who has hip taken out of joint? Ah, 
And why did he get his hip taken out of joint? Because he wrestled with who? God. Was there any conversation during that time? Yes. There was repeated conversation during that time. I just want to see you. You can't. If you saw me, you would. That is conversation, isn't it? It's interesting, by the way, if you go back to, to um, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, there's no conversation between God and man. You know that? Now, that may catch you by surprise. Genesis 1 and 2, there's no conversation between God and man. Or two, I'm sorry, between man and God. I said it backwards. There's no recorded conversation between man and God. The only conversation between God and man. God speaks to man, doesn't he? He tells him some things, like what? Give me some. Don't uh, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What else did he tell him? You can, you can feel free to eat from any other tree in the garden you want. What else did he tell him? Work the land. What else did he tell him? Name all the animals. That's basically what he tells him, right? And they go and do those things, except for they eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? When does conversation start? What? After the fall. What? After the fall, conversation starts. Immediately after fall. Adam! Adam! Where are you? Adam responds, what? I, 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 I was naked, so I hid myself. We, we were naked, so we hid ourselves. Oh, conversation, right? And God responds, says what? Who told you you were naked? So that's when conversation, interestingly enough, first starts. Which is really, by the way, this is a freebie. What an amazing picture of God's mercy and grace. Before the fall, man received commands from God, didn't, didn't he? Yeah, we mentioned the four that he got. But immediately after the fall, conversation starts. Why? Oh, and by the way, in the midst of that conversation, God says what? As they, as they, as they even blame God, right? Don't they? In the first conversation between man and God, man blames God. It's the woman you give me. He gave me. That's, that's why the fall took place. And he responds by saying, in the long discussion he has, he says, I'll send a redeemer for you. Wow. Oh, incredible. It's amazing. Let me just say that you can keep going with that one for a long time. Because God communicates with all sorts of people in the Old Testament, doesn't he? It's a two-way communication to a number of different people in the Old Testament. You've got Joshua. You've got Moses. You've got a number of these kind of communications. Various prophets got communications and talked to God. Not all of them talked to God. Some of them just received messages from God. But some of them talked to God. And then, amazing. Amazing. God comes and dwells among men. And does what? Communicates with man. And they reject him, don't they? He came unto his own, and his own what? Received him not. 
if we're going to quote King James, right? They didn't receive him. But for 33 plus years, three of which he ministered and taught and talked, communicated with people. Those who received him he talked with and those he didn't he talked with. Of course, the communication ultimately with those who didn't receive him was what? Ultimately, it's condemnation and death. Separation. But you start to see right off the bat that there is something different between man and angels, isn't it? There's an intimacy that God has with man that he does not have with angels. Now, there's many different directions we could go on this subject. We could talk about all the different ways in which the relationship that God has with man is different from with the angels. We could talk about forgiveness of sin, couldn't we? We mentioned it briefly, Isaiah chapter 6. We could talk about adoption, couldn't we? Ephesians. We could talk about being adopted, but not, not adopted as anything other than what? Sons. Adopted into the family of God. Angels aren't that. That is absolutely foreign to the life of the angels. But redeemed people are adopted as sons according to Ephesians. What's that? Exactly. But the angels, all of these we're talking about this morning, the, the angels, the scriptures are described as desiring to look into it. As a matter of fact, the scriptures say that they watch us to see what all this means. We teach angels, it says. They don't understand it. The only way they can understand these things is by watching us. Wild, isn't it? The way God designed it. We are watched by angels. And now when we say that, we typically think what? They're watching over us to make sure nothing bad happens. No, they're watching to see what it means to be adopted. They're watching what it means to, to, to be redeemed. They're watching what it means to be all the things that the scriptures say about his children. We could talk about a number of other perspectives. We could talk about what it means to be an inheritor, couldn't we? Angels aren't inheritors, are they? No, they're not inheritors. Redeemed people are inheritors. As a matter of fact, it's not just inheritors of leftovers. Jesus says what? It's recorded in the scriptures that Jesus shares the inheritance that rightfully belongs to him with his adopted brothers and sisters. That's you and me. He shares it with us. It all belongs to him. He shares it with us. There's any number of ways we could approach it. What I want to approach it this morning, the difference between man and angels, and I hope it's encouraging, but at the same time really challenging, is I want to focus on what has been called imputation. What, what that means is... Um, that if you want to understand imputation completely, the idea is, uh, well, completely is the wrong word because I don't think we'll ever understand it completely. But you get the point. If you really want to understand it, imputation is referring to the great transaction. Some theologians have called it the great transaction. The great transaction is the idea, as you've heard me say it many, many times before, that he stood in our place and he absorbed the, uh, he took on our sin, 
and absorbed the wrath that belonged to us. And we stood in His place as a result. He, a better way to put it is, He placed us in His place and He gave us righteousness that doesn't belong to us. But it's His. It's a great transaction. It's a complete transaction. Too often in my past, and probably I would guess in everybody's past, we've heard about the great transaction as just being that He took on our sin. But it is much, much bigger than that. The great transaction is two-sided. He took on our sin, took on our wrath, placed us in His place, and gave us His righteousness. That's the great, um, the great transi- transaction, uh, as someone has called it, and it's theologically called imputation. It's the big difference, by the way, if I could just throw this out here, it's the big difference between Catholicism and Protestant Christianity. It is the defining difference. Catholicism absolutely rejects imputation of righteousness. Pew! Absolutely rejects it. They, they see it more as an infused thing that, that, that Christ did his part and we do our part. And oftentimes, Christianity, Protestant Christianity, fudges on that one dramatically. Dramatically. And sounds much more Catholic than Protestant too often. But that's the big, big difference, whether we believe in imputation or we don't. Very important. I don't want to go too far into that. But I just want to throw that out there. Take, take your scriptures and turn over to Hebrews, if you would. I know we spent a sizable time in Hebrews, and we'll spend a little more time this morning. Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to look at Hebrews 1 to the end of the end of the book. No, just kidding. Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to read uh, the entire chapter. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So there's a big warning at the beginning of verse 4. For good news came to us just as it did to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith to those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And just a way of reminder, he's referencing the story of the wandering in the wilderness. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his work, all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Therefore, it remains for some to enter it. And those who, were for, who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying, through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. There's another warning. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Verse 11 and following. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall 
by the same sort of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. That builds into verse 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, and of course he's referring to Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. Interesting verse, verse 16 at the end of chapter 4. The call in verse 16 of chapter 4, the command, as it were, in chapter 4 at the very end is to do what? Draw near with confidence. Could I just throw this out here in light of chapter 6 and everything else we're going to see? The, the Scriptures tell us, call us to what? Draw near with confidence. Draw what? Near with confidence. You know another way to put that? God is commanding you and I to draw near without faces. What? Covered. In the Old Testament, that was not able to happen, right? You couldn't, if you saw God, you would die. But he tells us here that now everything has changed. This is the great, this is the great transaction he's talking about. This is the results of the great transaction of imputation. Now, on the other hand, we can and therefore we must what? Draw near, and the blessing of the command is what? That we have the ability to draw near with confidence. We can boldly go where before Christ died, if I may steal a statement from Star Trek, where no man has gone before. I know it sounds silly. But in the Old Testament, if anybody went into the Holy of Holies, what would happen? They would die except for the high priest. Once a year. If he went in twice, what would happen? He would die. And the only reason why he didn't die the one time is because God told him he needed to come and bring the sins of the people before him. And then the veil was torn. When Christ died on the cross, the veil was torn. And the Holy of Holies became available. Draw near with confidence. That's the point. It's talking about the ramifications of the great transaction. Draw near with confidence. And when we draw near with confidence, what do we find? What does it say in verse 16? We find what? For, for what? For when? In time of need, we find what? We find mercy and grace in time of need. 
right? Well, when's the time of need? All the time. That's why the command that's given is written in a, a form that says, come boldly to the throne of grace and keep coming. That's the idea. Or better put, come to the throne of grace boldly and stay there. Because we always are in time of need. Which begs the question, if I say that, I hear it, Steve, that's what you may be thinking, but the question is how and why, or not how and why, but, but, but how? How do we do that? How do we come boldly before the throne of grace? And we, you've heard me say it before, but we've misunderstood the text, it's talking about prayer, and it's now it's talking about, oh, it certainly includes prayer. We even call prayer coming to the throne of grace. It certainly includes prayer, but it's not talking just about prayer. It's talking about life lived. It's talking about where you live. Where a, a believer is to live is where? At the throne of grace. Because I don't need mercy and, 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 and grace just when I'm praying, do I? I need it all the time. So the question is, how do we do this? Well, let's look at some other passages. Romans chapter 5. <clears throat> how can we possibly do this? Romans chapter 5, verses 15 to 17. <clears throat> let's start at verse 12. <clears throat> Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not yet counted where there is no law. <clears throat> or not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who it was a type of the one who was to come. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to the many. Or for many. And the free gift is not like the result of of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through one, that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now we're going to see as we work our way through the Scriptures, when we ask that, how can I possibly come before the throne of grace, I by myself am a man who must sing what? Woe is me, my funeral dirge, right? Woe is me, for I am undone. The question is, what changes? And the reason why I started reading in verse 12 is because naturally I am one who is condemned. I am doomed to death. 
That's what 12 through 14 and uh, talks about exclusively in 15 to 17. Continue the conversation. I'm condemned because Adam sinned. I'm condemned to what? Ultimate death and separation from God, but I'm also condemned to what now? Sin. Aren't I? Naturally because of Adam. But in 15 and following, something else changes. Let me read 15 through 17 again. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So there's a free gift. You see in verse 15. And, and there's grace of God, right? Above and beyond the sin. That's what 15 is saying. Above and beyond the level of sin, there's free grace of God. Correct? And not just free grace, generally, generally speaking, and there's a free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the word abounded is the idea far above and beyond the sin that destroys us. Far above the sin that condemns us. Far above the sin that ultimately will leave us judged if the free gift and the grace isn't there. Does that make sense so far? So the free gift, I'm sorry, the grace of God, the free gift, uh, as it says in verse 15, the, uh, the free gift by the grace that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many, gives us the first, uh, the first recognition that something's going on. Verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. In other words, it's not the same level, it's much higher. For the judgment following one's trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. It dealt with all the sin. You get that? It's greater than the trespass because it deals with all the sin. Justification. For, because, for if because of one man's trespass death reigned through one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace, referenced in verse 15, and the free gift of righteousness. Now it's clarified what this free gift is. It's from Jesus, isn't it? Verse 17, it's free gift of what? Righteousness. Reign the life of, in life through one man, Jesus Christ. So this free gift that's referenced, we know the free gift is Jesus, right? Ultimately. But according to 15 through 17 of, of this chapter in Romans, what do we find out? The free gift is what more specifically? It's the righteousness of that one man, Jesus Christ, that is given to us. That's the imputation. That's the completion of the imputation. How is it possible that I can approach the throne of grace? How? Boldly. How can I do that? How is that possible? It's possible because I'm not approaching the throne of grace in my natural state. I'm not even approaching the throne of grace in a forgiven state. Do you realize that? I am forgiven. But my forgiveness, the forgiveness I've received from God does not, does not give me the right to approach the throne of grace. Does it? No. What gives me the right and privilege of approaching the throne of grace is that I've received something that caused the forgiveness of sin. It's the very righteousness of Christ. It's because of that 
then I'm able to approach the throne of grace boldly and receive grace and mercy at the time of need, which is all the time. And in comparison, in contrast to the angels, <laughs> they don't have any of that. Only as redeemed people are in that position. That's it. That is it. Let's look at another passage. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in, in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Imputation is not just... Please, I'm not using the word just to minimize it. It's not just you have the righteousness of Christ. You've been given Christ's righteousness. But it also is what? Ultimately, because you've been given Christ's righteousness, that alien righteousness I talk about a lot, because you've been given Christ's righteousness, according to this text, you also have what? It says it several times. Christ. Three words. Christ in you. You have Christ in you. Elsewhere, the Scriptures tell us in Romans, He will never blank, leave, nor... Which means if we are redeemed people, we always, what? Have Christ in us, and accompanying Christ in us is we have His righteousness. The angels don't have that. But His redeemed people have that. Christ in you. Now, can I just say this? I want to, This message is primarily to prime the pump for you. It's up to you at this point to try to figure out in the Scriptures, what does that mean? Christ in you. That's a foreign thought, isn't it? That's not a natural thought. That's a supernatural thought. What does that mean? Read Romans, you'll learn more about it. We don't have time to probe that. But you start reading it, it's amazing. The result, that's the results of imputation. It's a completion of imputation. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter one, we're going to look at verses twenty six through thirty. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from Christ, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now the last passage we looked at, what does it say in the last passage? Christ, the one we just looked at before, Christ in you, right? Christ in us. This passage says something different, doesn't it? What does this, one, what does this passage say? We're in Christ. Which should conjure up in your mind a passage we won't look at today because we just preached on it a couple weeks ago. Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 4. Because that's exactly what chapter 3, 1 through 4 in Colossians talks about. If you don't remember the passage, write it down, look at it this week. Here, he turns the statement exactly backwards Christ in you, and now it's you in Christ. There's a unity in that inness because of Christ's work in our lives, Christ's work on the cross. The imputation's effect is this amazing, crazy intimacy. I am in Christ, Christ in me, this incredible intimacy that the rest of the heavenly beings cannot experience. But you, if you're in Christ, you have that. And I have that. Philippians chapter 3. Nine and ten. We'll actually start in verse 8. You've heard me read this passage and quote this passage many times. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What does the text tell us about this amazing intimacy based upon imputation? In chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, what does it say? What kind of righteousness do we have? Not of our what? Of our own. It's absolute contrast between self-righteousness and some other form of righteousness. Is it not? We have on the one hand, we have self-righteousness, righteousness of my own. On the other hand, we have a righteousness that's not of my own, but it is from God. It is a righteousness, in other words, given to His redeemed people. Self-righteousness only condemns. It's rubbish, he says, doesn't he? You know what he said? It's rubbish. But he says, instead, there is a righteousness not of my own. And, he, and, and that's what he calls it. Verse 9. And you, some will argue, well, but Steve, wait, stop. Back up. In 8 through following, he says, um, if we jump partway through 8, 
For this, for His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Doesn't that sound like He's working? That I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own. And if we think of it that way, we've totally screwed up. That I may gain Christ for Paul is absolutely an antithesis of self-righteousness. The, found, the, the, the statement gaining Christ is accompanied with be found in Him. The gaining Christ is not by His effort because the context is really clear. It's a righteousness not of His own. Gaining Christ is not something He does. Gaining Christ is something that is done. So it's really important we see it in its complete context. Anyway, the idea of a righteousness, again, not from himself, is very clear in Philippians chapter 3. It's Christ's righteousness is the only hope he has. It concludes in verse 11, and that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The only hope he has is what? Being found in him, gaining Christ, and having a righteousness that's not his own. Philippians chapter 1. Second to last passage today. Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. This is a prayer. Paul's praying for the Philippians, 9 and 10. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with, with knowledge and all discernment, verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ, Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of of God. Paul's praying for the Philippian people in the, in the Philippian church. And he prays what? That they will be filled with the fruit of what? Of righteousness. That they may be filled with the fruit of righteousness. And he says that comes from what? Comes from who? Jesus Christ. Now, too often people misunderstand prayer. So let me just real quickly clarify something to you. People look at this and say, well, Paul is praying, if you follow through on this, Paul is praying that the Philippian church, the people of the Philippian church, will, what? Be filled with the righteousness that comes from Christ. And if we're not careful, we'll say, we better work hard that we will have, what? The righteousness that comes from Christ, Right? And Paul's praying that, they'll, that, they will, that they will work hard to have the righteousness, that they'll be filled with righteousness. That's not what he's praying at all. That's where we misunderstand prayer. We grotesquely misunderstand prayer. Because the way we typically understand prayer, if I may go back to Aunt Melba's big toe, we pray that, that, people, that God will heal Aunt Melba's big toe, but we forget that God never promised to heal Aunt Melba's big toe. Correct? The, the prayers in the Scriptures are almost inevitably the people who have their prayers recorded, and certainly Jesus' prayers as well, almost inevitably the prayers are purely and simply based upon what God had already revealed, had already promised. They're prayers of faith. 
A prayer of faith is prayer is based upon what God already revealed, already promised. What is Paul praying? He's praying that God would do in their lives what he promised to do. Has he not, have we not seen that his promise every step of the way with regard to righteousness? Did, did God not promise that if he redeems somebody, if he saves some people, if, if, if he saves someone, that is if Christ stands in their place and absorbs the wrath of God by, because he took on our sin, did he not say that we will and have been placed in his place and receive his righteousness? Has he not said that? Yes! Now, I just scratched the surface how many times the Scriptures tell us that. So when he says, I pray that, that you will be filled with the righteousness that comes from Christ, he's saying, I just pray that God will do what He promised to do. And if you're already saved, He has. That's what he's praying. It's a prayer of confidence that God will do and has done. Not every people, every person in the Philippian church is saved, are they? So, there's still some people to be placed in that position of receiving Christ's righteousness. Some people have already received it. He's praying for all of them that God will do what God promised to do. It's a beautiful place to be. So Paul's prayer for the Philippian church is that they will be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus. What's interesting comes through Jesus Christ. What's really interesting about the text and this is where the exhortation, up to this point in time, I'm just really trying to encourage you. Because I think it's amazing what we see in this whole picture of the contrast between angels and man. Conversations between God and man. Conversations between angels and man. Angels and God. Eh, kind of sketchy. Closeness. Boldness. Approaching the throne. All these pictures are stunning to see about God's relationship with man. Imputation, taking our place, putting us in His place. It's amazing. It's, it's, it's earth-shaking. It is mind-boggling. Encouraging. Confidence in Christ. The exhortation is equally important, though. Because in this text, the exhortation comes at the very end of it. The very end, which is verse 11. So, verse starting in verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent and, and be pure and blameless for the day of Jesus Christ. Are we in the right passage? Yeah, Philippians 1, verses 9 and 10. We looked at verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus. And then it concludes how? To the glory and praise of God. Now this is really, really important. There is no command in this text that you glorify and praise God. That, there is no command here. Is there? Correct? No command. You know, Paul is praying what God has already promised. So he said that. And this is where the exhortation comes in. What, what Paul, in effect, is saying to the Philippians as he prays this prayer is he's praying that God will do what he promised, give the people Christ's righteousness, the redeemed people Christ's righteousness, 
for the purpose, what's the purpose? To the praise and glory of God. And that is, again, not a command, nor is it a, a prayer that, that, that is a veiled exhortation. It's not a veiled exhortation. So my exhortation is not, if you're saved, you better praise and glory God. Glory in God, because that would be an injustice to this text. Quite to the contrary, what Paul is doing is praying, and he's saying, if it is true that I have Christ's righteousness, or to put it a different way, if it is true that imputation has had its effect in my life, that Christ stood in my place, and he put me in his place, that he took on my sin and absorbed the wrath and he gave me his righteousness, the result is going to be, that's the idea of the text, the result is going to be what? That Christ, that God will be glorified and praised. That's the point. So the exhortation, if we're going to be consistent here, the exhortation is not go out and, and glorify Christ and praise him, the real exhortation that Paul does right in the very beginning of the text, that he's going to argue the rest of the text, is a more simple exhortation. Is that me? You see, for Paul, the point is not get out and do it. The point is, is it there or not? Because if imputation is there, this will be there. If imputation has taken place, the great transaction, this will pour out. And that's what Jesus argues all the time, doesn't he? If you drink from me, what happens? Out of you will flow rivers of living water. It doesn't say, get out there and start flowing. It will flow. You know what it says? And here it's the same thing. It's if then. If imputation has taken place, it will be to the praise and glory of the Father. That's why he saved us. And that's why he's given us his righteousness. And that's why it's Christ in you. And you in Christ. Because you've died and your life is now hidden. I said I wasn't going to quote Colossians 3, and I just did. The ramifications are dramatic, aren't they? So it's both an encouragement and an exhortation. What does it look like? Let me just wrap it up. We don't have to turn back there, but Isaiah chapter 6. What, is, what does imputation look like? This is before imputation because Christ hadn't yet died. By faith. Isaiah is looking forward to the imputation. And his response to redemption is what? Here am I, send me to the praise and glory of God, right? Even after God tells him what horrors his ministry is going to be, he does what? He goes. Post Christ's death and resurrection, Saul's heading to Damascus, hating Christ and all of his followers. Christ, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul is gloriously saved to the glory of God the Father. Isn't he? To the glory and praise of God. And he three days later goes and he preaches Christ being crucified in, in the temple, in the tabernacle, in the synagogue. I mean. He's transformed. 2 Corinthians, real quick, turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> Verses 11 through 15. We don't have a whole lot of time, so I'm just going to be real brief. 11 through 15. 
Verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But while, or, I'm sorry, but what we are known is known to what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast in us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For verse 13, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because, because we have concluded this, that one has died, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live no longer might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for their sake and was raised. In this text, we have those two great statements, out of many, but two great statements. <clears throat> what does this all look like? Well, he, he first of all says, because we know what? The fear of the Lord, we what? Persuade others, correct? How is it possible that Paul could know the fear of the Lord? Because Christ in him, he in Christ, the great imputation. That's how he knows the fear of the Lord. And it drives him to persuade men. What's that all about? Glory of God. Praise of God. And later on the text, verse 15, for the love of Christ controls us. That's what it looks like. The love of Christ controls us. Well, why would the love of Christ control us? We love because He first loved us. 1 John 3. We reflect the love that comes towards us. How can we not? Because of the great imputation, the great transaction. The love of Christ controls us. And then he goes on and talks about death and resurrection. What does it look like? What does it look like, Philippians chapter 1, for the praise and glory of God? It looks like understanding and knowing and living in this, 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 this idea that the, that the fear of God, what the fear of God is, and living in this idea, the, the, the love of God. Well, does that mean I've got I to gotta, I gotta constantly be focusing in on the, the fear of God and the love of God? No! That's not what the text says. There's no command there again. If The idea is, if the great transaction has taken place, if imputation has had its effect, if Christ is in us and we're in Christ, it means we're going to know the blank of God. Which one? Fear of God. It's also gonna, we're also going to realize and, and have the blank of God control us. Or blank, blank of Christ control us. What? The love of Christ control us. It's not commanding us, got to make sure the love of Christ control us. No, if, if, the, if the imputations take place, the love of Christ will control us. If the great imputation, the imputation has taken place, the great transaction, if it's taken place, the result is going to be the fear of God. We're going to know it. And because of that, we're going to persuade men. So the call of this entire study is not anything that you got to do. The call of the whole study, as we look at the great difference between angels and man, redeemed man, that is, the closeness, the ability to boldly approach the throne of grace, and all the rest that we've looked at this morning, 
the call of the text is, is that me? That's the call of this entire, all these texts we're looking at. Is imputation. Is imputation really the thing that's real in me? Has Christ saved me? Have my sins been atoned for? You see, what, what, what Paul and all these other texts we've looked at, what they're presenting is, this is what imputation results in. It's not what you've got to do. It's just what imputation results in. Christ's death and resurrection on the cross, what it did results in this. It, not, it doesn't say anywhere it may result in this. It does. It does. So the call of text is not go out and do better, which is what most people say about all these texts. It is more of an examination, is, is that me? Am I a redeemed one? Does the love of Christ control me? Do I know the fear of the Lord? Or is it some sort of crazy little abstraction that I never really even think about? That really is quite meaningless, that, that there's wrath and judgment and condemnation. Because when we were redeemed, when we've been rescued, when imputation has effect, we are changed by the love of Christ and that great gift of righteousness. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, help us. <clears throat> not to do better. Not to try harder. Help us to, number one, realize the truth about what you've declared. And then, number two, open our eyes to see what is true in our lives with regard to that. You said in 1 John 5 <clears throat> that these things were written that we may know we have eternal life. And so, Lord, I, I pray you'll help us to know that we have eternal life. By these truths. Not because we prayed a prayer or raised a hand, walked an aisle, come to church, be a member. but because Christ is in us. And we're in Christ because of imputation. Because we know the fear of the Lord. Because the love of Christ controls us. Help us. In your name I pray. Amen.